comes the money. Here we go. Here comes the money. Money, money, Welcome to the Free Money Podcast on probably one of the worst weeks I can remember. <laughs> yeah, hard to start off with like jokes and comedy when we're all under quarantine and curfew at the same time and good reasons for both, but also really good reasons for people to be out protesting right now. Yeah, you know, the subject of the podcast this week is is racism and like long story short, we're against it, but we want to take it a lot more subtle than that, right? I think you know, if you've been what paying attention to the news, right, you've seen the protests over the murder of George Floyd. You might have missed that a black journalist with CNN got arrested before the police officer who killed him, or that the four other black people were killed just this week. That's since May 2028. The Justin Howell, Sean Martirosa, Jamel Floyd, and Tony McDade. Yeah, it's hard to bring like, you know, we, we sort of set out with this show to bring levity into the into this boring world of pension funds, but it's hard in this moment. I've had this weird thing, like at the beginning of this week, I was like, the cops are generally, they're generally okay, right? Like, you know, sure, there's some bad apples. And now I'm like, why do we even need these people? It's been interesting to watch the, the kind of perspectives on the Twitterverse as people are like, look, we've been accused of police brutality, so let's respond with police brutality. And, uh, you know, there's some atrocious videos out there right now of police beating up seemingly unarmed passive protesters. So I can understand why you'd say that. I mean, I, you know, I think police is an important part of society and we can talk about that. But yeah, what I'm seeing out there leads me to ask a similar question. So it's pretty crazy. I was just stunned to see many cities, New York, not so much because we have a massive budget. But like L.A. spends a quarter of its total budget on policing. Oakland spends like 40 percent of their total budget, their total general expenditures on policing. And that's probably because like all sorts of other social services are being performed by the police. Right. You know, if you have a domestic disturbance, a police officer shows up and it's sort of an interesting moment to question from base principles, like how we compose our society in that way. Right. Absolutely. I mean, I think if anything gives me comfort, it's actually the the response to the brutality and the response to the curfews is to express free speech and to get out there and kind of demand the rights that I think we all kind of hold so dear and hope are, you know, still represented by the flag and the Constitution and all that good stuff. So literally, as we're recording this, like my wife is down at a protest. So <laughs> this is the era. This is the era we live in. And can you imagine how we'd feel if no one was protesting? You know, in my neighborhood in New York, we had like all sorts of fireworks going off until late in the night, which was freaking rad. There were cheers that went off every time. I'm curious because like the institutional investment world traditionally thinks that we have powers to apply to big problems, but like we can't do a shareholder referendum on the police. That's right. What is the playbook for an institutional investor? It's an amazing question because I think for the longest time, we kind of interpreted our job as like not involving this stuff, right? Like we were a level beyond, we were beyond this type of uh, civil unrest, beyond the kind of racism and bias. And I hope that's starting to change. And so, you know, if I was kind of sitting there as a chief investment officer or the, on the board of trustees of a fund like this, I think I would start by saying, are we taking the S in ESG as serious as we could? That's the social risks, things like wealth inequality, racial bias. Like we hear those terms, ESG, batted abound all the time. In fact, we had Gene Rogers on two weeks ago and we had an amazing conversation about resilience. But the S 
is really critical. We've got 60% of Americans that don't have $400 in the bank. We've got, you know, more billionaires in asset management than in any other industry in the world. And part of that is because the pension fund community, the sovereign wealth fund community has ignored the fact that their policies to go and invest in high cost hedge funds and high cost private equity funds ultimately have consequences beyond their performance. And so step one is just understanding what these additional societal risks are from their behavior. It's funny, like I was thinking like really long term a while ago, like people were talking about by 2045, this country is going to be majority people of color, right? Yeah. And right now, one in 10 black men in their 30s is in prison. So in 25 years, those people will be approaching the age of retirement and and their kids will be the majority who will set the political terms of engagement in the time when pensions pay out their benefits. It's an existential issue for them. Yeah. I constantly wonder about this because the way we've decided to govern these big pools of assets is like, look, don't think about that stuff. Just focus on companies. Don't think about the riders in the streets or what those represent. You know, just focus on the liabilities you owe. And it's as if by doing that, you know, all the other problems will miraculously be resolved. It's like you go back when people are like, no, no, no. If you focus on shareholder value, like all the other stuff will line up. Exactly. In the pension fund space, that's like, that's the fiduciary duty to focus on commercial and financial performance. The problem is these pensions have to exist for 7,500 years. Did you see the woman who was receiving a Civil War pension died this week? I did not. Wow. She was born, I don't know, in the 30s or something like this. And her father had fought in Civil War and she was under one of the disability pensions. You know, so that was the final person. Right. And so these pensions pay out for a very long time. And these pension funds and the investment strategies they put in place touch centuries apart. And so we really do need to like find a way to help these organizations to cross those centuries in a way that feels more coherent and connects through to the social purpose that they often represent. I mean, the fact that these pension funds are pension funds with the purpose of paying old age pensions and keeping people off the streets should give them license to think beyond, you know, is this hedge fund the right hedge fund to achieve my 8% uncorrelated, you know, alpha? You know, these plans need to invest in their communities and they need to invest in emerging managers and they need to be proactive about the world they're in and stop doing the short term rational thing from that perspective of fiduciary duty and do the rational thing from the world they inhabit and take these long-term risks more seriously. The same logic that tells you that you should care if the city that you are managing pension assets for is going to be underwater in 30 years, you know, like drives you to think like, okay, if young black kids are, who are ambitious and smart are growing up and they're being told that social justice is more important than their other ambitions at the moment, because they have to fight for everyone like them. That is a huge, huge problem. I, and I'm immensely unqualified to address it. Oh, me too. I'm like the least qualified. I'm, we're, but let's talk about it, you know? Yeah. I think what we're at least willing to say is this is a really hard topic and we're willing to talk about it to like demonstrate that the worst thing we can do is just say that this was a... Uh, there's a lot going on. Like all of our phone calls this week with professionals in the world. It's like, how was your week? Man, there's a lot going on out there. It's like, oh yeah, like 
protests about racism? Is that what we're talking about? Nobody wants to talk about it, right? What, like cops murdering people? Yeah. <laughs> like, but beyond just talking about it, I think like one of the tangible things that I've always, you know, there's the ESG, there's the investing communities, which we've seen sovereign development funds do very well, by the way, and generate high performance, but we won't go in there. I would love to see more money flowing into emerging manager programs, in part because one percent that is professionally managed in the world is managed by firms owned by women and people of color one percent that's obscene so if you just think 50 percent of the world is women (laughs) and at least in the u.s you've got 15 percent people of color that one percent number is not a representative statistic you know there's something going on there and in order to to kind of level the playing field a bit more we need to be proactive and the thing that kills me is these programs generate amazing performance. If they're done well, yeah, if they're done well. That's so nuts. I saw one study by JP Morgan where they showed over like a 15-year period, the private equity and venture capital funds in emerging mac- manager programs outperformed the benchmarks by 500 basis points per year. That's a lot of them. Yeah, that's a lot of basis points. That's wild. I don't think I've seen that. Yeah. Why don't the asset owner communities do this more? It's because it's hard. It means, you know, going out and finding a bunch of small funds to put $10 million to work in instead of picking yet another Carlisle fund to put $250 million to work in. And the small funds, you know, could create some career risk for you as you pick these smaller funds with teams that may not have all of the exact same credentials and identities that you're used to backing. There is this reinforcement of the status quo, and the status quo is largely white male. And so in order to break that reinforcement of the status quo, we need these types of programs to be implemented. And so this is an area where I think, you know, the next five, 10 years, we should see a lot of innovation and design and experimentation, because what you're seeing in the streets today, it's not as if we are immune to that from in the financial services community. We have the same problems. It's just they don't play out with life and death. They play out with, you know, who gets funded and who doesn't. Yeah, we got to import some expertise on this, I think. Let's do it. Who are we talking to? Darren Dodson. Oh, my good friend, Darren, my co-author on an incredible paper on racial bias in asset allocation and uh, one of my favorite people. See if he picks up the telephone for us. Hello, this is Darren. Darren! You've got Ashby and Sloan. Hey, how's it going, Darren? Good. And Sloan as well? Yep. We're both here. Perfect. We're calling you quasi-live from the Free Money Podcast in the sense that we don't like to do edits, so we kind of do it in one take. But we were just kind of talking through the issues of the week, obviously a pretty heavy week out there, and wanted to connect with somebody who could really explain a couple of things, you know, why the asset owner community isn't doing more to support managers that are people of color. But even before we get there, how are you doing? I am uh, hosting a group in a conversation of $100 billion in asset allocators to put a through line from slavery to lynching, to mass incarceration, to tuck that in to the asset management overlay so that people can understand how assets got to be so imbalanced and uh, huge disparities that lead to suboptimal returns for our portfolios and also violate fiduciary duty. It's been a, we have about 30 hours of work over the weekend. So I just wow. finished the opening session. 
So we offer for a lot of our investors at Unlimited Capital something called the Unlimited Capital Impact Experience to bring them together to put these dots together. So I'm heartened by that work. Uh, a lot of this is doing the work to uh, move capitals in ways that's optimal. As I've uh, worked with Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt and as well as Dr. Ashby Monk to to work on this paper uh, with a, a few other authors to really work to prove and show the bias that managers of color face as they increase their performance, particularly black managers. So after we proved that in a paper and published it, then the question becomes, what do we do about it? And a lot of people are making statements all over the country around how they value communities of color and black communities. But when you look at their asset balance sheets, I've been kind of thinking about like not statements, public statements, but yeah. balance statements and financial statements and whether those mirror the statements that people are making publicly. So that's something we believe in as a firm in Illumin Capital. It's something that is evidenced in the paper that we publish. It's something that we share with our investors so they can be, who currently manage over a trillion dollars in capital so yeah. that they can begin to apply these ideas to their uh, broader portfolios. Let me just hone in on a sub point of that. I think throughout history, whether through redlining for process you want to name, the financial community has been a big player in perpetuating inequality, perpetuating in effect segregation. Is it still happening in your view? And in terms of my background, uh, I spent three years uh, with the Center for Responsible Lending and 60 attorneys passing laws to reduce predatory lending. And we also proved through a data-driven hypothesis and execution of $6 billion in loan pools and proof points that low-income women and people of color, particularly Black and Latino communities, were overcharged for mortgage loans. And we wrote several papers about that back then that led to the shifting of 18 laws across the country based on the evidence of the overcharging and taxing of the number one way in which low-income, particularly Black communities, reach the middle class, which is home ownership. So systematic overcharging, not above risk on communities where we overlay GIS statistical mapping data with different mortgage databases to prove that indeed banks were overcharging families, mothers, fathers that were Black and Latino Mm -hmm. relative to their white counterparts and their uh, biggest opportunity to create wealth in their life. And, And is it still happening? Part of the reason I went to business school at Stanford Business School is because I was sick from seeing the practices in the mortgage lending market. And after working with a team of 60 attorneys to pass national frameworks, watch businesses transform and change those laws back and undercut a lot of the laws that were on the books to protect low-income homeowners. So now in this strategy at Illumin Capital, we invest in 10 private equity funds, systematically require uh, and partner with them to do 10 years of implicit bias reduction work as a part of our investment and unlock the impact and returns within our portfolio is uh, part of our systemic change since the passing of laws did not work to sustain those protections against women and people of color particularly Black people. That's fascinating. In the process of doing that, you must encounter tons of people who come into it thinking they're not racially biased, but you know, nonetheless make these racially skewed decisions, whether it's where to get a cup of coffee or who to back. How do you counteract that tangibly? 
Well, I think the most interesting thing that they don't realize is that they're leaving returns on the table. So they may not realize that they're racially biased, but what is the incentive to reduce the bias? One is that you miss the people in the human condition that may be, uh, you know, wonderful additions to your life. The other is you miss your fiduciary duty to execute the billion or trillion dollar um, corpus on behalf of the communities, whether they're in pension funds or retirement programs or foundation endowments or family offices or university endowments. And I think that there's a long way to go, <laughs> particularly in university endowments and pension funds, as Ashby knows, I think, better than most in the world. And that's part of the reason why we partnered together with Ashby and, you know, his incredible work and research across pension funds to take a deep look and help them understand that unless they do the work, they're going to leave money on the table. And not only that, they'll sort of undercut the best fund managers that are in their pipeline, do their biases without doing the work. Yeah, Darren, that, that has been such a rewarding project for me in, in part because we've been able to make the case quite clearly that they're leaving returns on the table. They're not assessing all of the opportunities in the same manner, which means that any bias we see in investing, and we have many biases, right? There's status quo bias, there's you know geographic bias, home bias. This is a bias that distorts the decision-making of investors, asset allocators. We showed that in the PNAS study. And so we can go back to them and say, look, you're leaving money on the table. It's your fiduciary duty now to build processes that reduce this implicit bias so that you can maximize the performance. But Darren, I'm, I really want to hear a little bit more about Illumin. You know, I loved hearing the kind of prior narrative about your, I didn't actually know that story that that was. That was just wild. Yeah, which that's what sent you to, to go study with us at Stanford. But what are you doing now with Illumin? I think it, it's such a compelling story that maybe you could just do, you know, 30, 45 seconds on, on Illumin. Sure. Illumin Capital is a private equity venture capital and growth fund of funds. We'll select uh, 10 managers that are working on different themes of transformation and change within key systemic leverage points within the world. They vary from themes around financial innovation, inclusive financial innovation. I'll just put that in there due to my background and experience in watching extractive financial innovation, environmental transformation on trends that improve outcomes um, and health outcomes in communities around the world. Um, we also are invested in some of the leading ed tech firms in the world who, of course, if they don't reduce bias, you know, the AI and machine learning acceleration of algorithms will repeat the same biases that are present in school systems. Many listeners may know that 4x the amount of black students are currently expelled relative to their white peers within that school system currently in K through eight reading levels and school levels. And if we repeat those biases within the minds of the teachers and we build these technologies, that's a huge challenge for business models because the federal government likes to see things grow in ways that are equitable. But it's also a huge challenge generally for those of us that love equity and justice and inclusion in the world. So part of what Illumin Capital does from inception is it also includes a partnership with Stanford Spark and Dr. Jennifer Eberhardt's research center. Uh, he's one of the leading 
thinkers on implicit bias in the world and in fact published the book Bias, which we're included in. And part of the reason why that's so important is because that we knew when we went out to uh, work on the thesis that Ashby and I worked on with Dr. Eberhardt, we found that in, on our journey that without a, kind of a, a credible backing from a, a, you know, a, a fabulous institution like Stanford, it would be difficult for people to believe something that by definition that they could not see which is actually what bias is. So we have to make that palpable, tangible, help them to see it, which is the mission of our partnership with Stanford, refining the tools to reduce bias within the investments that we make. I'm just fascinated. It occurs to me that some of our listeners may think that we're talking about essentially a philanthropic activity, even though it's a pure private equity fund of funds. I wonder if that you could tell us a story of like from intervention through to internal rate of return of how this sort of intervention made money. Yeah, I think um, you know we're 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 two years in right now, so it's quite early. But you know, some of the early evidence is that we've seen managers invest in companies that they wouldn't otherwise have seen without our process. Much of the work that we do is uh, confidential. And the reason why that is, is because we believe there's $35 trillion in undervalued assets within the $70 trillion in the asset management business. And because we have a competitive strategy to help people see how those undervalued assets work, we don't reveal kind of the process of reducing bias within our firm to those other than the investors that we have. I think, you know, it'd be like Google putting its algorithm out there and yeah, saying, no, hey, that makes this, total is our, sense. this is our algorithm. But let me see if I can, you know, help on a, you know, a previous career example. You know, there's a, a education tech company that's in front of uh, 90% of all kids in the country. You know, the, the potential of them to realize what I just said around the 4X expulsion rates of black kids before they begin a strategy to go in and put images in front of kids by translating the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and other reading material to kids on K-8 through level. Imagine if the New York Times were translated in front of kids today. And it doesn't take much to imagine how you need to filter out the images that could destroy the future imagination and capacity of kids to overcome the images that they're seeing of people that look like them, particularly for black kids as they're kind of taking in the images across the country and the world. So without kind of thinking together around strategies like that, the business model breaks because the company is reinforcing biases instead of unlocking the imaginations and innovations of the future within the minds of children, rather than reducing them and allowing that forcing function that we need as a society to take place. That's great. I might ask another question here, Sloan. I think we run this podcast largely because we're trying to talk about, you know, the biggest investors in the world, pension funds, sovereign funds, and and the system of capitalism that we're all a part of here today is increasingly powered by these big long-term investors. They provide the capital to the professional money managers, which in turn provide money to companies and projects that need it. And this chain of intermediaries kind of flows through the entire system. And so unraveling all of this is kind of part of what we're trying to do with this podcast, Darren, is we're trying to like explain (laughs) what pension funds and sovereign funds are to the world that 
you know, so that they can understand this system of capitalism. What I've noticed in the work that I've done around um, climate change is that the forest fires in California and the the fires in Australia, terrible crises have have forced the trustees of these fiduciary bound investors to start to take climate change seriously. Is there a moment now where this is a moment similar to the climate change story where we can take this terrible tragedy and the protests around the country and bring this issue into the boardroom of the biggest investors on earth and sort of demand that they pay attention? Well, I think not only could we, but I think we've gone too far now to turn back from that commitment. You know, one of the things that, of the many good things that happened in the civil rights movement, one thing that didn't happen is that the push for optimal asset allocation that would include brilliant black fund managers and Latino fund managers and women and people of color across the world never happened. And that's the backbone of the Mooney bonds, you know, across different asset strategies. It's the backbone of the ways that we fuel the ed tech, you know, that, that is proliferating around the world, that's educating all of the students around the world. It's the building the infrastructure in ways that systematically leaves out communities. So without a critical analysis of this time around and this moment in time that includes the $70 trillion in assets that are the backbone of the global financial markets, we'll never be able to really have Black Lives Matter or other lives matter across the country, so in the world. So I think that, you know, one of the laser focuses of Illumin Capital as a mission is to execute on our vision to invest in the funds, reduce bias, increase returns, and enable our investors to outcompete others by applying similar uh, technology. So if you're at a pension fund and, and this isn't part of your thinking, I think that you run the risk of being left behind and worse. You run the risk of leaving the retirements of so many people. And, you know, some would wonder why pensions underperform relative to what many would expect. And I think this is one of those big reasons. And as I've learned from Ashby relative to the climate movement, although, you know, there are lots of really important things to hit right on climate, we're actually, rather than limiting the total set of investing assets within including the optimal women and people of color run funds, which are the optimal funds that have traditionally been left out of the analysis. And when included in the analysis, often don't get invested in. When we leave them out, we shrink the universe of total potential opportunities, which you know more modern portfolio theory would suggest is a bad idea. Something is deeply broken in our system. It's something that hurts our returns. It's something that creates systematic bias across many of the asset pools in the world. And uh, that's not a good thing, whether it's confirmation bias or anchoring bias. As uh, Ashby shared earlier, it's uh, about looking at the opportunity on the other side of reducing bias. And as I mentioned before, where we'd be normally distributed on, we're, we're underweighted $35 trillion towards women and people of color, put it like that. I love that you brought that up because it is something I'm constantly reminding folks that unlike the climate change space where we're in effect asking people to reduce the size of their portfolio in order to minimize the effects of climate change, racial bias is already minimizing the portfolio. And what we're asking you to do is open your eyes to the entire portfolio of investable assets, which it's your duty 
to do. And so this should be a much easier ask, actually, of the fiduciary-bound investors. We're asking you to consider all the investable uh, universe, which it's your duty to do. So thank you for reminding me of that. I need to continue to use that in my talks and, and classes. Darren, thank you so much for doing the labor to educate us and our listeners. I mean, the, it's, I'm sure there are many things you'd rather be doing. I can't in good conscience let you go, though, without asking how the energy and emotion, really the thirst for change that has happened in the last week can really be harnessed for the long term. In other words, how do we make sure that whatever changes are made really last? Well, the answer might seem quite simple, but it's a you know, move $35 trillion to women and people of color run funds. I mean, do it with uh, good intention and don't take 50 years to do it. Do it in 10. So if the strategy, if we knew, I mean, imagine one day if we woke up and we found out we were underweighted clean tech by 50%. And like our returns and our job and those we report to and steward wealth for mattered. How long would it take before we move to meet a market gap around mm -hmm. the things that would produce the highest returns in the world? Not long. And if that's not enough, it's illegal by fiduciary duty to systematically preference investors that would not choose optimal returns for the portfolio. So I think that on the stick side, there's some tools. On the carrot side, I think there's a lot of incentives. I think this is a, a big carrot opportunity. And one of the encouraging things that in the you know depths of the sadness of what so many are taking a moment of pause for around George Floyd's death is that those that have seen the violence and seen the little tip of the spear of the financial services backbone that shows up in the financing of cities, that shows up in the financing of you know heavy weaponry in, in communities like the one that, that, that I grew up in in D.C. as the mayor asked the president last night to reduce some of the, the black activity in my neighborhood. Uh, shock and all tactics used in, to destroy and create fear in society so they won't ask for the things and they won't demand things that are better, that create a better world like we're talking about right now. And not just a better world, but also higher returns for the communities in which so many investors are in theory responsible to. Couldn't agree more, Darren. I think, I think my last question for you before we let you go is... Our hope here is we can be talking to the pension funds themselves and, you know, through this format to people who are interested in freeing the money inside these organizations from the constraints and biases that they often exhibit. How would you advise the people running these big pools of capital to be reacting this week, next week, in the months to come? What can they do constructively in terms of really anything, you know, what would you would be advising me to be advising my friends that are chief investment officers on how they can be a part of a constructive dialogue or a solution of some sort? Yeah, I would say sit down and, and talk with us. We didn't wake up and start this journey yesterday. This has been a lifelong commitment for the people from our team and our relationships. And we bought it. We built this boat for tough waters because we, our thesis is that tough waters will always come and will continue to come until this you know, happens, either financially tough waters, because volatility is much higher in times like these, and it will never stop until you know, portfolios are ironically both optimized and include 
you know, the very people that we see overlooked because they're outperforming on a systematic basis throughout markets. So I'd say, don't leave money on the table. Do the work to figure out. I mean, if we were talking about the new growth trend and AI moving through, you know, the world, what everybody would do is they would begin to learn how to do AI and do the research. same commitment. Yeah, they do the research. They talk to the leaders and thought leaders in the field. And, you know, I think that includes our incredible team. It also includes Ashby and his great thinking, as well as Dr. Eberhardt. And I, I'd sort of reach out to the people who have been at it for a while and not the people that showed up within the last two weeks and right. thought it was a great idea to launch a fund. It's just they have a lot of catching up to do. And in this field in particular, there are a lot of false starts based on the fact that people haven't been studying, researching, and understand. And one of the things that we see in bias and high periods of anxiety, national anxiety, is that it skyrockets. So the inability to select top-performing managers because of race even spikes higher. So while everybody's launching funds, unless they've really done the work and honed in an analysis approach, a thesis, and understand that nuanced dynamics like any other field of investing, then they, you know, subject themselves to greater risk. So I'd say, you know, talk to us. Um, yep. you know, we have something to share. We have a, a, you know, a mission and a strategy that's been around. I love that allegory. I mean, I remember every corporate CEO was talking about blockchain like six months after uh, Bitcoin came out. I think we all hope that, you know, we have an adoption curve that looks like that for racial awareness. Couldn't agree more. I mean, think about all the research projects that got launched on autonomous driving, even among, you know, the asset owner community. We need more research projects to understand how you can get this exposure. Darren, thank you for all the work you're doing at, at Illumin and in the work that you're doing to educate and engage and, and the patience and passion you brought to me to get me involved in, in the research. It's been incredibly educational and eye-opening, and I'm just grateful to be on the journey with you. So thanks again for coming on. Yeah, grateful to both you, Ashby and Sloan. Look forward to continuing the journey with both of you and uh, excited that there's a, a focus on this now. And I think the big challenge is to make sure that that doesn't go away collectively. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry it took us so damn long. Me too. All right, yeah, all right. we'll, we'll keep pushing it. Thanks, Darren. Have a great weekend. That was wild. Yeah, he's one of the most thoughtful people in the space. And so I was really grateful he could come on and spend, you know, 25 minutes with us. And, you know, he's been doing it. Illumin. They are the tip of the spear of putting diverse managers, people of color, managers in business and, and helping them launch. And, you know, he's not going to tell you the secret sauce. He joked about the Google algorithm. <laughs> the Google algorithm. Yeah, his performance is really good, you know, and, and so he's going to have a successful career because he's right. There is a bias which you as an investor could take advantage of. You know, there's outperformance here, which you can go get if you're just willing to see it for what it is. It's a racial bias. So. Yeah. One like sub point that he made when he was talking about ed tech and AI and bias, I think like to ed, put a pin in this conversation, like when we think about minority VC, often people think about like black products, but black investors don't need to invest in black products, just like trans investors don't need to invest in trans products or male investors. You know, it's like black people use Slack too. Right. And the voice of black investors, you know, women investors, other folks can really help make those experiences better in meaningful ways and less reinforcing of these crazy biases that so infect our society. I agree. 
I agree. I wish I was more articulate and more educated. It's moments like, like at the end of when you said, I wish we started earlier, like it's just so obvious now that this is like one of these monumental things that we all needed to be paying attention to for so much longer. My wife worked at Teach for America for six years and I feel like I was being sensitized to all this over that period. And, and I just still feel so far behind. And I, you know, I want to sound like I want to be the partner to Darren and Jennifer and the team and do our part. I'm guessing I'm not alone, Sloan. I'm guessing yeah, not even close. many, you know, middle-class white academics and professionals like myself are out there trying to say, how do we help? Yeah. And TBH, I hope, you know, if there's anyone in the audience who doesn't think that way that they've deleted our podcast. (laughs) Wow. We managed to laugh. But with that in mind, that was a drought. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God. We're going to do a Dear Ashby today. Yeah, we're doing it. We're holding uh, you to the the flames. Oh, geez. A double Dear Ashby. Oh man. Hopefully that means the questions are easier or yeah. Let's see. Uh, Yeah. They're going to be stingy this time. Do black lives matter? Just out of curiosity. Is that that is a listener question? That's a listener question. Oh man. Well, thank you, listener, for putting me on the spot there. Of course, I continue to be kind of confused by the people who uh, tweet at people that are saying Black Lives Matter, that all lives matter. And I find it confusing for a few reasons. I mean, I think ultimately what we're doing here is we're just pointing out data. This is like public awareness, right? We're not trying to devalue any lives by saying Black Lives Matter. We're trying to say, you know, according to the data, Black men are treated in a way that cannot be explained through simple statistics, you know? Of course, Black Lives Matter, this is a movement about making the public aware of an issue that is now pervasive. It's rooted in data. Black men are three times more likely to be killed by cops than white men. If this was uh, representative of the population, that ratio should be roughly reversed. That's the simple math. And it's hard for me to like go through Twitter and see all these All Lives Matter responses. When we tell people that the data shows that cigarettes give people cancer and those people die, we don't react with some claim about all things, you know, making people die or people, everybody dies. Like if they did, you would be confused. Yeah. Like when people go 9-11, never forget, you know, people don't go all buildings matter. Exactly. I saw that that may be a t-shirt coming. And so, you know, the data shows us this is something we need to pay attention to. And so just like other public service awareness campaigns, we need to put this out to the people and make them aware. And, you know, Black Lives Matter is is the marketing behind a very serious, you know, social crisis. And so people who, you know, are out there tweeting All Lives Matter, you know, for me, are you saying black men are being treated fairly despite what the statistics show? I think that's a morally precarious position that's getting awfully close to racial bias because the data shows they're being targeted disproportionately. So if you're saying all lives matter in the face of that data, then there's some heavier questions to get into. So of course, black lives matter. Yeah. Hopefully you're just saying that as a prelude to being enlightened by somebody who will track you. Yeah. I'm, I'm guessing nobody on our, has listened to our podcast is like disagreeing with the fact that black lives matter. So how can one be an active, effective ally in these circumstances? Oh, an ally. I mean, I've, um, I've given this a lot of thought, but I actually want to flip it to you, Sloan. Fair. That's fair. And before I kind of jump in and give some you know, naive perspective on what I think being an ally is, tell me, what do you think an effective ally is? Yeah, period. Yeah. Well, I think like the important thing about allyship to me when it's practiced very well is that it doesn't impose a higher cognitive load on the folks that you're working with, right? So if you're like trying to support somebody in your life, you shouldn't make their life harder in the process of doing that. 
sometimes what happens is like, for me, I am a trans woman. Folks will come up to me and be like, oh man, why would anybody ever dislike trans people? Am I right? And that's, pardon my language, fucking stupid. It's just sort of like, I just want you to know I'm cool. And like, to me, the most remarkable demonstrations of allyship are just when people are people. And like when they go out of their way to check people who are acting in ways that are, you know, excuse my language again, fucked up just directly. Like, I mean, I've had situations in my circumstance where people have like misgendered me on conference calls and this particular person is a consulting client that like warmed the cockles of my little heart. I think like more broadly in the financial industry, like we have a tendency to align with power and stability over justice. If you think about it, like HSBC just pushed Hong Kong to be sucked into the mainland, right? There are instances of that, you know, that you can find if you really look for them. You know, it's important to think about, you know, who is being papered over by inaction. I love that. I mean, I love the way you describe the cognitive load as the thing not to create. We in the Monk family, we are just super excited and, and happy to have a young black man living with us. He's a Stanford student. He came over from Rwanda three years ago. He, we're his host family. He's a part of the family. My kids, you know, got to know Terry when they were five and seven. And so he's part of the family. And I think the way we have had to quarantine together, especially during this period, the way that I think we've thought of being an ally to him in this process was literally just listening, learning, understanding what it is to be a 22-year-old black male living in this country today. And uh, it's been incredibly eye-opening and educational. And um, he's super patient with us and you know, allows a lot of basic questions to come from the kiddos, obviously. But that too has felt just like such a privilege to be going through these protests with somebody who can kind of share what it is and the lived experience. So you know, sometimes being the ally, you sort of feel like you're becoming the educated, you know, which is kind of a privileged internal viewpoint. Never kind of expected that. Yeah, you definitely get access to like secret knowledge that is not generally known, like a certain senator who is about to be out. Last question. Is it really so bad to use the phrase human capital? And for context, a, a Trump advisor used the phrase human capital to talk about the labor force on national television about 10 days ago, and it was roundly mocked. Yeah, I mean, I I always enjoy mocking Trump advisors. You know, I think there's part of me that enjoys that. And, you know, I, as I've been made aware, I mean, there's a whole part of the human capital kind of phraseology that links back to racism. And so, you know, I think you got to be careful in the context you use it. You know, you don't want to use it in dehumanizing way in which instead of calling people people, you're calling them capital. The problem is that we educate people to, you know, especially in economics and finance, we educate people to call this human capital. I think Goldman Sachs's HR department is called human capital management. Maybe. Like, are you, that's not a joke, is it? There's a business card somewhere in my effects that has that on it. <laughs> and yeah, humans were capital assets. At yeah, one exactly. Point. Yeah. The notion of capital is in this context of economics and finance is like, you could think of it almost like potential energy. Like social capital, if you have a lot of it, you could be an influencer or, you know, human capital. If you've got a lot of it, it means you're highly educated. You have a lot of capabilities. And so I can understand somebody would get up, hopefully in an economics contest and say, look, we've got a lot of human capital here. You know, we're going to put it to work. It's like, look, we got a lot of people with a lot of potential. 
we're going to put it to work. Now, in the midst of a crisis, as everybody is, you know, suffering and you have to assume that, you know, 95% of the people you're talking to have never taken an economics class, I think it probably didn't land where they thought it would land. And so just, you know, I can understand why that person said it, but it doesn't necessarily excuse the use of it, even though I myself sometimes have caught myself saying human capital when I probably should just call them people. You know, it's a funny thing that the economics does where it just sort of colonizes other areas in your head and you get these cool technologies of mind that allow you to see stuff. But then they also blind you to the like lived experiences underneath the supply demand curves. You know, it's partly why instead of pursuing a pure economics degree, I went and did economic geography. Economic geography as a subset is a subset of something called human geography which actually is about appreciating the identity and idiosyncrasy of all people made up in the world. And economic geography is the subset of that saying, hey, let's appreciate all the factors of, of economies and understand why they function the way they do. And so what that tells you is the economics discipline often does kind of revert to those top-down views of the world rather than taking that bottom-up local appreciation. And I'll just mention that all the Ivy League universities during the Cold War decided to push human geography out of their universities because they viewed it as being too linked with Marxism and communism. And so we ended up with economics winning and this top-down view of the economy that's kind of neutered from local over the local appreciation of everyone in the academic environment. And so that's in part why you see this pervasive use of capital and all this stuff rather than like the, the real words for why, you know, what they are and what they're doing. That's wild. That's wild. We've already taken a lot of your time, beloved listener, but we very much hope that this was, if not a fun, it was hard, a, yeah, a useful, you know, hour or so to spend with us. If you did enjoy it, or, you know, if you just think we're cool or whatever, please tell a friend and leave a, a review in your podcast store of choice. You know, that'd be nice. I think that'd be a nice thing they could do. That would be nice. That would be a nice yeah. thing. Unusually for us, some of this there was some investment advice in this thing, which is get right with yourselves <laughs> and wake up to the opportunity and diversity. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.